0: And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temen. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, March 15th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Robert O'Shaughnessy. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, the Census Bureau gets a report card on how it learns its own lessons. Plus, meet the federal executive whose career has involved the great outdoors for 25 years. Of stories and much more ahead during this hour of the federal drive. But first, the federal information technology budget will be on the rise again in fiscal 2024. President Joe Biden is asking Congress for more than $74 billion just for civilian agencies. The administration, maybe for the first time, is offering a lot of insight into where those extra dollars would go. Federal News Network's executive editor Jason Miller joins us with the details. And let's start with that basic number, Jason 74 billion. Sounds like it's better than a jab in the eye with a sharp object. Which agencies would see the biggest increases here?
1: Tom, I remember when you and I were working in in the old days and we thought 35 billion and 40 billion was a lot. Now they're up to 74 billion, and as you said, just for the civilian agencies. And, And the big increases are across the board. 19 of the top 25 agencies will see increases in 2024 if obviously this budget gets passed as is. We know that's not likely to happen, but I think a lot of agencies will probably end up seeing those increases. And not surprisingly, Tom, the two big ones are, are the Veterans Affairs Department seeing a $2.3 billion potential increase as compared to the 2023 request, almost $11 billion in total IT spending. And the Department of Health and Human Services also breaks the double digit, moving to just over $10 billion as part of their request. Other agencies that will seem significant Requests are the Treasury Department, $1.5 billion more for a total of $7.1 billion, and two of the smaller agencies, EPA, $91 million increase, and the Small Business Administration, $150 million increase, as some of the winners. Tom, we have the full list in 2024 on federalnewsnetwork.com, of course.
0: Yeah, there's a theme there that agencies that have struggled with particular matters because Treasury and the IRS and Veterans Affairs with customer experience and their rollout of their electronic health record, SBA, because it had so much trouble overseeing the money under the COVID relief. And we see all that fraud. So you can kind of see a theme running to fix things. And you said there's more detail than usual for where this money is going. I know you've dug into the documents. What did you find out?
1: There's always so much to look at when it's budget day. But the two big areas that we're seeing that will contribute to this 13% increase over the 2023 request is cybersecurity, no surprise there, Tom and customer experience. Let me start with cybersecurity. This is the obviously uh, something that we've seen rising over the last 10, 12, 15 years. The administration says for civilian agencies, they are going to request about $12.7 billion. Again, that's another 13% increase over the prior years. But what's different for the first time here, Tom, is the breakdown of where some of that money is going. And in, in years past, uh, they've broken down by the NIST framework, identify, protect, detect, respond, recover. We know those data. But now they are actually also breaking it down by a memo from November 2022 that focuses on the investments for cybersecurity across really three or four areas, improving the defense and resilience of government networks, deepening cross-sector collaboration, defense-critical infrastructure, and strengthening the foundations of a digital-enabled future. They're asking for about $366 million just across those priorities. And I caught up with Chris DeRussia. Now, he spoke at the Zscaler event. That's before the budget came out, about the day before. He kind of teased that we'll have some of these new data. numbers, and and different data than ever before that really will focus on where agencies are investing in zero trust. You explained how agencies got to this 366 million plus some of this other uh, numbers around cybersecurity.
2: Because we have the strategy and the pillars, we've done data calls, mapping tooling investments at agencies into those pillars and actions and capability areas. And, And we can have all that data mapped out now and give us one zero trust number for each agency. That's exciting because now we can actually say we know how much money we're spending on our priorities.
1: Again, Chris Derusha, the Federal Chief Information Security Officer, speaking at the Zscaler Public Summit recently. Why this data is important, what will continue to happen with this data is not just collecting it, it's how they're going to use it and how they're going to drive change. And I think DeRussia says he's very, He's excited to really answer questions that in the past was more difficult to answer because it's not just about spending data, but what that data is happening. Again, I caught up with Derusha after he spoke at the Zscaler conference.
2: As you start to get more years, you can see by the measured progress of implementing new technology uh, through the performance metrics and then compare that to what you've been spending and have some analysis on Because that's that elusive question that everyone always wants to know in cybersecurity. If I spend this much money, what do I get from it? And, look, I think every organization in the world struggles to answer that question well. And what we've put together here is a model where we believe over time we're going to really start to have an answer for that to be able to know, yes or no, are these investments driving the change that we want to see?
1: Again, Federal CISO Chris DeRussia, speaking to me after a recent conference. And Tom, one other thing about this idea of cybersecurity is there's always been more and more and more. You know, it was 9.5 billion in 2022, 10.7 billion in 2023, and now 12.1 billion in 2024. That's a recognition of the challenges agencies face. And again, this data will help ensure that OMB agencies, Congress knows what that what agencies are getting for that investment.
0: Well, it's funny. Zero trust is not a product, everybody says, but it sure is expensive anyway. I guess it's a service. Getting to the idea of customer experience, where did the administration, where are they saying this money increase for CX will be headed?
1: There's a whole series of investments that they outline for customer experience. And my colleague Joy Heckman has covered this quite a bit, but let me just offer you a couple of details. First of all, the budget includes more than $510 million to strengthening activities around modernizing programs, reducing administrative burdens, and piloting new online tools and technologies, all in the name of customer experience. Now, some of the investments that we found about just recently with the new budget uh, that was not in the quote-unquote skinny budget from uh, a week ago – says, you know, for instance, the administration wants to spend $13 million for six agencies to work directly with the General Services Administration's Technology Transformation Service on priority projects identified through their CX action plans. Now, this could include, for instance, fish and wildlife service around digital permitting activities, or the Interior Department wants money for online management of individual Indian money accounts. The administration also rolled up about $75 million for interagency life experiences work. Again, this is what they say to enable a more efficient administration of federally funded benefit programs to improve the journey of, for instance, disaster survivors accessing federal assistance or streamlining Medicare enrollment for seniors. There's about 10 agencies that would play a role in these multi-agency projects. So I think that's why they want to really put money where it's going to matter the most. And then finally, Tom, there's a whole development of a voice of a customer platform for for seven federal agencies. They didn't say how much they'd like to invest, but this is stuff that, for instance, would help federal student age uh, understand what students need and parents need to help them process loan management, apply for repayment. And I think, Tom, these are good examples of where this money is going, stuff that maybe we've seen, hey, we want to invest, but not how much. So the difference is how much they do want to invest in, in customer experience.
0: Right. These look like a lot of the high-impact experience programs that were identified originally in the president's management agenda.
1: You're absolutely right in the sense that they're really trying to say, here's our, are the areas that we think both life experiences and high-impact service providers that we think need more oomph, need more help, to because they, they will impact the most people across the, the the country. And I think that's why you're seeing this investment in these places. Again, there's there's also, for instance, Tom, the VA wants to bring in 120 different customer experience experts. I think that's part of the effort to really improve how they serve veterans.
0: And what about modernization? I mean, you would think that improving customer experience and getting zero trust and other cybersecurity measures across the government would constitute modernization. Are there other monies allocated in this increase for other modernization initiatives?
1: Every time the budget comes out, the first thing I think a lot of us who follow this closely turn to is, what's the Technology Modernization Fund getting this year? And then I always look at the Federal Citizen Services Fund, which is run by GSA, and OMB is what they call ITOR Fund, the IT Oversight and Reform Fund. Now, interestingly, Tom, that despite the fact that agencies across the civilian sector are potentially going to get more money, OMB actually did not ask for huge increases for these three other funds. For the Technology Modernization Fund, they're only requesting $200 million That's down from their $300 million request from the previous year. And remember, part of I think the reason is uh, the White House only received about $50 million from Congress in the 2023 omnibus. Now, for the Federal Citizen Services Fund, which has been growing, 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 that request was $90 million. That's down from the $115 million request from 2023. Going back to what Congress did in the omnibus bill, they came in at $90 million. So, again, I think the administration saw there's some levels that they want to reach. And, again, for the ITOR fund, which is used for a lot of the digital services work out of of the White House, uh, they requested $14 million for 2024, same request for 2023, and what Congress appropriated, again, $14 million for 2023. So it's interesting that despite these increases across agencies, these big funds, these government-wide funds, are are basically flat or even a little bit down in the TMF's case.
0: Federal News Network's Jason Miller, some good digging. Thanks so much.
1: And there's more to come. Thank you very much, Tom.
0: All right. Be sure to check out ongoing coverage at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, meet the federal executive whose career has involved the great outdoors. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Among last year's presidential rank award recipients was a senior executive whose entire 25-year federal career had to do with something in the outdoors. He started with the Fish and Wildlife Service. Now he's the Nevada State Director for the Bureau of Land Management. John Raby joins me now. Mr. Raby, good to have you with us.
3: Thanks so much, Tom. It's great to be with you and really uh, excited to talk about things that have been able to make an impact here in Nevada and nationally. So thanks for your time.
0: Well, great state you've got out there, you know, aside from Las Vegas. The rest of it's really nice. And am I right in saying that you have an outdoor thread that you were able to weave into a federal career?
3: I do. Absolutely. You know, I'm a graduate of Ohio Northern University. I have a biology degree and I started out my career as a fisheries biologist. And even as a student, I volunteered for the Fish and Wildlife Service. So I actually started as a volunteer 33 years ago. I've had a 33-year federal career um, with three different agencies between 28 years with the Bureau of Land Management, two years with the Fish and Wildlife Service, and three years with the U.S. Forest Service. So, you know, I've worked at every level in the Bureau of Land Management from uh, staff level fisheries biologist, really starting at the ground level up to leadership positions in our field offices and district offices and all the way up to state director in Montana and the Dakotas and now here as a state director in Nevada. Um, I also spent some time in D.C. where I was the uh, senior advisor for the assistant secretary of land and minerals management, as well as the chief of staff for the uh, Bureau of Land Management director. Yeah, it's been a great career. Worked in four states, California, Oregon, Montana, Nevada, and in the district of Columbia. So it's been a great career.
0: And you have been through some of the upheavals that the Bureau of Land Management had. I guess it's probably a good 10, 12 years ago now, but it really did get resettled into a different kind of an agency.
3: Well, yeah, we've been, you know, as an agency, um, you know, when I started out, I feel like as a Bureau, we've always been in a state of adaptation and working to change in a way that, best meets the needs of the public we serve, right? And so that means at times we have to be adaptive. And certainly, you know, over the years when we've been uh, working to get decisions closer to the ground, you know, we've had some organizational change that reflected that. And certainly, you know, here most recently, as we're looking to make sure that we have the right leadership, composition and, and representation of our senior executives in D.C., you know, we certainly see that focus um, right now. And so really excited that we're working to um, rebuild the Bureau in a way that reflects the needs of the American public.
0: And as a state director, what exactly do you do? Do you review the applications for use of federal land or what happens there?
3: We have a lot going on, Tom, as you can imagine. So in Nevada, we have a lot of renewable energy development. We also have a lot of uh, energy transmission projects in the queue, mineral development, as well as our conservation efforts. And I'll just touch on those in a little more detail. Uh, So our renewable energy development, we have everything from solar and wind and geothermal, but the vast majority of what we do is solar energy permitting. And so We have a goal right now in nevada to meet the 25 we have 25 gigawatts by 2025 that the um, energy act of 2020 laid out for us nationally and of that we're looking at 13 gigawatts in nevada and so when we look at the entire state of nevada it's about 71 million acres it's a large state of that the bureau of land management you know i'm responsible for 47 million acres that's you know about two thirds of the state And we're focusing our opportunities for development on about 9 million acres. Um, that's just the planning area roughly that's available to us. Just to give you an idea of sort of the footprint of each solar project, about one gigawatt of power equals about 5,000 acres of solar panels. And so, um, when we do that simple math of 13 gigawatts and, you know, 5,000 acres per gigawatt, that's about 65,000 acres that we need to permit in the next, you know, several years. And we're on track to do that course, that all means we got to have those located in the right place and make sure that we're sensitive to you know the surrounding desert and sagebrush landscapes, ecosystems. Sure. And, and that takes just a lot of planning.
0: We're speaking with John Raby. He is Nevada State Director for the Bureau of Land Management. And as an outdoorsman, what do you think about covering thousands and thousands of pristine acres with these burning, reflective things where, you know, a low-rise building in one place with a single clean smokestack could do all of what that thousands of chewed up acres with solar panels could do.
3: You know, again, we're working in conjunction with our transmission projects. And if you can imagine, well, I just mentioned we have three transmission projects that are on the White House's list for, you know, critical transmission infrastructure, We have one that's Greenlink West, one that's Greenlink North, and then we have our Southwest Intertype project. And you can imagine an inverted triangle that reflects those three utility power lines, right? Those are 500 kV lines that are going to be able to carry about four gigawatts each to energy markets. And a lot of the solar development the proposals right are in areas that are closely aligned with where those transmission lines are and so we try to incentivize areas that may have previously been disturbed um, we're looking at at areas that also have the least amount of resource conflicts and so again that careful siting is incredibly important. And of course, as an outdoors person, it's always in the back of my mind about ensuring that those areas also are available for people who want to hike and recreate and do the things that they want to do on their public lands. And so we hold ourselves to high standards and we have to you know, ensure that we're factoring the other uses in to the authorization process as well.
0: And we did speak to you because you are a Presidential Rank Award recipient. Congratulations. And what is it specifically that got that award on your shoulders?
3: thanks for that recognition tom and there's a lot to that over a long period of time and i and i like to think that first and foremost that you know i'm being recognized really because of my ability to help our employees and help our teams achieve greater things than they otherwise would think they could achieve and you know we just have a great team here in nevada you know i mentioned the uh, renewable energy projects and transmission projects we also have a lot of critical mineral development in our teams and you know what i've been able to help them through has been you know with our lithium projects that have been recently in the news and, and a big focus for us. And you know we have a couple of different projects that have been in the queue where we've withstood litigation. And at this point, we have um, our FACR Pass project, which is being actually implemented right now. And that can produce up to 25% of the world's supply of lithium, which we all know is so critical for electric vehicles and our renewable energy goals, and that you know each one of those electric vehicles takes you know eighty pounds of lithium and eighty pounds of copper as well and so our, our minerals are just the foundation for our technology, industrial needs, you know defense needs as well. so that's been a highlight of my career and and really helping our team to you know get to a point where we can really see the fruits of those labors
0: and are you an electric car guy yourself?
3: Well, you know, not yet. I mean, they're getting better and better. Right. And, uh, and so we're, we're looking for the day. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a truck guy. So I am look for, you know, the day when we can see, you know, some some four by four trucks that are really, uh, you know, cutting edge in the electric vehicle side.
0: Well, they're coming, but they'll weigh about 7000 pounds. That's part of the problem with it. And now you're not that old. I mean, you've been in the government 25, 26 years. You've got some years left. What do you hope to do in the remaining time of your career?
3: Well, in the remaining time for me, it's um, making sure we get good projects out there. You know, I think one of the legacies that I'm always really proud of is our conservation efforts as well. And so in, in Nevada, we have right now two designated national monuments, and we have a number of national conservation areas. We have Gold Butte National Monument, we have the Basin Range National Monument, we have the Red Rock National Conservation Area, we have the Sloan Canyon National Conservation Area, and the president announced at the um, National Native American Congress here um, in in November that he'll be uh, designating the Aviquame National Monument um, sometime here in the near future. So looking forward to that, and as always, you know, I got to make a plug for Red Rock National Conservation Area. It's, uh, we get about 4 million visitors there, it's about 30 minutes from the Vegas Strip, and it's the place to get married now. It's, uh, we have over 1,000 weddings a year um, at Red Rock, and it's you know, just an incredible place. So,
0: Well, it does sound like a little piece of paradise on Earth, even if it's close to Las Vegas. John Rabie is Nevada State Director for the Bureau of Land Management and a Presidential Rank Award recipient. Thanks so much for joining me.
3: Thanks so much, Tom. It's been a pleasure.
0: And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, potential Defense Department claims against contractors have a shelf life of infinity. But first, the Census Bureau gets a report card on how it learns its own lessons. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Census Bureau is already applying lessons learned from the 2020 decennial count in preparing for 2030 and even 2040. For one thing, it learned how to lower costs through employee productivity. So 2020 came in nearly $2 billion under budget. The Government Accountability Office finds census could tighten up its internal feedback loop. We get more now from the GAO's Director of Strategic Issues, Yvonne Jones. Ms. Jones, good to have you back.
4: Thank you. Glad to be back.
0: The dominant impression I get from the report is that Really, the Census Bureau pulled off a minor miracle to get this count done fairly on time, given COVID and way under budget. I mean, it's a wonder they don't just make it all up. But this is a real count, isn't it? Yes, it is. And so the idea of lessons learned, I want to start there. I didn't realize after using that expression 100 million times myself and hearing it a billion times, there's actually an eight-step lessons learned process that GAO has identified. Let's start there.
4: We've done quite a bit of research in this area. And we defined a lessons learned exercise as a systematic set of steps for agencies to learn from an an event and decide when and how to use that information to change their behavior. So you're right, there are eight steps. So very briefly, first, an agency collects information, then it analyzes it, then it goes through a process to validate any lessons that it feels it has acquired through the collecting and analyzing of the data. Then it has to store or save the lessons for current and future use. It shares the lessons in the agency. Then management will decide whether to spend money to apply the lessons to the agency's activities. And then they will try to see if there are changes in the behavior of staff and others to verify if the lessons were learned. And then as a final step, they will evaluate the lessons by comparing the money spent to the results obtained.
0: All right. And you found that the Census Bureau is doing seven of those eight steps. Which ones do you recommend that they add?
4: Well, it's the eighth step, which is evaluating the lessons by comparing the money spent to the results obtained you know as you as you said earlier the census was carried out in a different way this past time because of many different factors among which were the covid pandemic so while the census you know has a, a good understanding you know of the steps of lessons learned they did not have the opportunity in the 2020 census to evaluate the lessons by comparing the money spent to the results obtained
0: and then looking for 2030 then mm-hmm the lessons from the displacements or the changes in plans caused by the COVID, I would imagine that's a difficult thing to bake into your next plan because maybe there won't be a pandemic. And then what do you do? Is that one of the questions they're facing?
4: Well, certainly they do need to understand how what happened in, in terms of both their schedule and cost estimates how these factors were impacted by all of the, the changes that required were required in, in the 2020 census. But the census collects quite a bit of information itself. For example, it archives a monthly snapshot of its master schedule file, and that's the way it manages the schedules for all the census activities. Then it can go back later and, and compare what actually happened to what the estimated schedule was, They have done some of that for the 2020 census. We feel that they could deepen and broaden that process, and in doing so, that they would incorporate that into their preparations for the 2030 census, and they would also understand more where they were on point and perhaps a bit off point in the 2020 census.
0: We're speaking with Yvonne Jones, Director of Strategic Issues at the Government Accountability Office. So it sounds like they may not know the dollar costs of each thing, but they know the ratios and they can adjust the proportions of money devoted to different activities from this feedback, even if the gross numbers might be different because of changing prices for technology.
4: They they actually know know the numbers and the time differential in a number of cases, not necessarily for every case, because as they informed us, They had to make a lot of changes very quickly because of unexpected events like the pandemic. But they would be aware of a lot of the quantitative elements, and they do have the capacity for collecting more information for the elements for which they don't have as much detail.
0: And they found, you found, that they found that some costs that they anticipated came in higher and some came in lower even That's though the, the overall tab was less than anticipated and mm-hmm. so how do you reconcile that what should they do with that information
4: first of all you know the census has been engaged in in a process of trying to reduce the rate of growth of the census for for over a decade and as a matter of fact with a 13.5 billion dollars cost. That's the estimate as of September of 2022, as compared to the estimated cost of $15.6 billion. Yes, it does represent a $2 billion decrease from the original estimate. But I think more importantly, one should understand that the rate of growth of the increase of the cost has come down quite a bit. There was a 15% increase in cost between the 2000 and the 2010 census. There was a 7.4% increase in the rate of growth of the cost between the 2010 and the 2020. So that shows that some of the efforts that they undertook to reduce cost have, in fact, worked.
0: One of the causes of a large increase in cost in 2010, I believe, was they were not very good at integrating technology. At the last minute, they had to go to paper. And hire a contractor to process paper, but they learned how to apply a lot of new technologies in time for 2020. Yes, they did. And so getting into 2030, do you feel, I mean, overall, looking at their lessons learned process, which is seven-eighths of the way done there, and the fact that they understand their costs in great detail, they should be pretty confident that 2030 could go smoother than 2020 in the absence of some kind of national emergency that affected pretty much the entire economy.
4: What we think is that the census is increasing its ability, first of all, to obtain clear, reliable data on both the cost and the scheduling aspects. And that provides them with a, a baseline against which they can compare the costs of the various projects and programs of the census, even while the census is underway. I mean, what we did find is that the Census Bureau is different from other agencies, because, for example, when we examine their works, the work schedules from other federal agencies, we don't often see that the agencies have saved as much valuable information, for example, in month, monthly snapshots of master schedule file data that the census has. And so what that allows the census to do is to have a better sense of the quality and reliability of their estimate. Then they can look at the costs and the progress of the schedule as they go along in the 2030 census if they continue to incorporate changes that we and they have identified. And hopefully, because we don't know exactly what's going to happen in the future, that will allow them to both better plan and execute the 2030 census.
0: I guess maybe they think of the census as a continuous process, a 10-year process, in some cases longer than a 10-year process. It's a rolling, overlapping process with the enumeration itself happening periodically. But really, the census never ends then, does it, in that sense?
4: No, that's correct. The Census Bureau starts planning for decennial census about 14 years before the census is actually carried out. So that means that there is an overlap between whatever the next census is, and then the one that comes after the, the next census. So, yes, there is an overlap.
0: And your specific recommendation, and did they agree with it?
4: Yes, we have two recommendations, and the Census Bureau agreed agrees with both of them. So, the first one is that the director of the census should document and take steps during the 2030 census to evaluate the Bureau's lessons learned process, because, as I mentioned earlier, they could not fully carry out this process during the 2020 census. And our second recommendation is also that the director of the census should include steps in the 2030 census schedule management plans for learning lessons. And that should be based on a systematic, after-the-fact evaluation of the schedule data.
0: And they accepted those recommendations and Yes. Good to go. All right. Yvonne Jones is Director of Strategic Issues at the Government Accountability Office. As always, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, potential Defense Department claims against contractors have a shelf life of infinity. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Even when a claim against a federal contractor is dismissed, it never dies. Like a zombie, it can rise forth and bite you. That's what a decade-plus dispute between Textron and the Defense Contract Management Agency shows. We get details from Haynes boone partner, Zach Prince. And Zach, what could possibly occupy a company and the DCMA over 10 or 12 years? Tell us about this case.
5: One of the major problems in any accounting dispute with the government is that the government does not usually challenge contractor accounting practices until way after the contractor has already incurred those costs and reported the costs using the practices. We've seen this issue come up time and time again. Even where the government has reviewed and even ostensibly approved accounting practices as compliant, it still will come back years later and say, actually, we have an issue here. It doesn't comply with the cost accounting standards or cost allowability provisions. It has a huge impact on contractors and doesn't really leave them with much recourse. So the courts and boards have grappled with this issue for years, trying to figure out how to resolve this inequity. Court of Federal Claims last year in a case involving Sikorsky suggested that possibly those sorts of claims from the government would be barred on equitable principles. But in the backdrop of all of this is a statute of limitations. The government has six years, contractors of six years, too, to bring claims one against the other under the Contract Disputes Act. The question is always, when does a claim accrue? is when does that clock start counting? And in cost cases, you typically would argue as the contractor, government, you were aware of this, you know, seven, eight plus years in advance. You waited way too long to audit. And so the case should be dismissed. The problem is since 2014, the federal circuit has this rule that statute of limitations issues are not jurisdictional. That is, if it's late, it doesn't deprive the court of the ability to hear the case. And so it means that cases have to go essentially, to trial before this type of issue will be resolved, which is exactly what happened here in this Beechcraft defense company case before the board
0: in other words, you could still be outside of the statute of limitations but it would take a court decision to establish that
5: that's right after a lengthy trial likely so wasting everyone's time and resources
0: so one way or another you're in court
5: that's right you you'll probably win and I think my read of this is in this case Beechcraft is going to win but not before it spends a heck of a lot of money getting all the issues resolved at trial.
0: So what happened here in this particular case? Beechcraft, I guess, is now part of Textron since this all emerged.
5: Yeah, that's right. So this started in 2011, really started earlier than that. Uh, Beechcraft submitted its forward pricing rate proposals to DCAA, which audited them and concluded in 2011 that there was really no issue. So DCMA issued an initial finding in June 2011 that there were some potential noncompliances, but ultimately that it was not material, so there's no need to do anything further. But wait, there's more, because at some point, and we don't know when, because the record wasn't clear before the board, uh, between 2011 and 2015, DCMA said, actually, we need more information. We need you to put together this general dollar magnitude proposal about a cost impact from these noncompliances four years later this starts picking up the government doesn't actually issue any decisions in this case until 2018. you've got a six-year statute of limitations it's certainly seven years at least from when the government should have in my view based on what i've seen known about this
0: so this is something then that was bought and paid for years and years ago and somehow the contract is still swirling around in the audit hairs of the dcma for cost accounting
5: that's right and i this is not the oldest case i've seen in a cost accounting context Uh, there are still some cases from 2007 2008 kicking around wow
0: we're speaking with zach prince he's a partner at the law firm haynes Boon. And just as an aside question here, what is the mechanism by which an agency would discover something buried deeply in a set of documents for one of a couple of hundred thousand, several hundred thousand contracts under its purview? Do they have some kind of an AI program running, combing for this stuff, or do they hire interns to randomly revisit
5: ancient cases? No, they've got auditors. They've got auditors. So I don't know what kicked this back up in 2015. Who looked at this and said, you know what, actually, this is a cast violation. But for whatever reason, it triggered the interest of the agency.
0: And what is the status of it now? They're headed to court.
5: They're headed to court. So the board in a decision here for summary judgment from Beechcraft uh, looked at the definitions of claim accrual, uh, which is when you're going to have that time clock starting for uh, statute of limitations purposes. And they explained that the government doesn't actually need to be fully aware of the full impact of the supposed damages for a claim to accrue. For liability to be fixed, there has to be some injury. So the way they stated the test seems very favorable to Beechcraft is the government had these forward pricing rate proposals. They issued audit reports, several of them in 2011. Beechcraft argued the government had all the information in front of it that it had in 2015 and 16 that should have let it know that if there was an injury, this is what it was. But the problem is that because it is now the burden of the contractor to demonstrate that the statute of limitations bars the case, the board needs there to be absolutely no disputed facts. So the board wanted there to be all of those reports and all of the data that uh, Beechcraft says were important in the record in front of it and the meaning explained. And they hadn't carried that burden yet.
0: Yeah, this is really the personification of red tape to the layperson looking externally at this. And so contractors then basically are under a sort of Damocles that could fall down on their heads at any time for some arbitrary reason. Hey, we found something on column seven on page 53 that that bolt was incorrectly attributed to this contract when it really went on that tailpiece, and therefore you're in court. What can contractors do to prevent this? Is there anything they can do to wall off that possibility at some point?
5: Not a whole lot. One thing they could do is resist accepting contracts subject to the cost accounting standards. But you really can't do that when you want to have contracts above a certain size threshold. Um, If you're selling commercial items, that's an exception. But if you're a traditional defense contractor, cost accounting standards are going to be something in your life. You could also try to avoid having cost reimbursable contracts. But The problem is cost reimbursable contracts are very beneficial in many respects to contractors. You don't have the risk of, say, crazy inflation or supply chains going haywire.
0: And what are some of the, if you know, some of the common cost accounting errors that could be avoided? For example... Attributing a cost to the wrong part of a project or to a if you have several projects, it could be assigned to the wrong project, which means you know the government pays in on one side, but on the other hand it's it's saving. I guess it all comes out in the wash. but is that the kind of error that can happen, or just simply That's, misstating or overstating costs
5: It's certainly the type of error that can happen where you misallocate costs to one contract instead of the other you know, private sector instead of government or vice versa. But a lot of these disputes really come down to interpretation of arcane accounting rules where the government's position maybe is plausible, but so is the contractors. And arguably, the government has already known for years about how the contractor is interpreting those rules. So it's hard to avoid these disputes.
0: And if you're a small business, same rules apply. And therefore, relatively speaking, your costs of going to
5: court could be much higher. Small businesses are fortunate in that that's one of the exemptions to the cost accounting standards applicability. So it's the challenge is once you graduate from your size uh, standard and now you're a large business, you likely don't have the accounting set up to deal with this. Uh, I see this all the time in acquisitions where a company that was small is now bought by a big company. They do not have the mechanisms in place to comply, but they better do it very fast
0: and I guess the other lesson is never throw away your paperwork, so to speak.
5: That's always a lesson in government contracts.
0: All right. Well, no bonanza for Beechcraft this time. Procurement attorney Zach Prince is a partner at Haynes Boone, him and his pooch there. Thanks for joining me.
5: Thanks for having me, Tom. And
0: we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Biden administration has a long wish list for hiring and pay reforms. Its budget proposal for fiscal 2024 asks Congress to help the top ranks of the civil service get the full effects of pay raises, no more compression. It's also looking to deploy so-called talent teams across government to speed up agency hiring. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman has more for us now. And let's talk about the federal pay itself, 5.2 percent. Is that the watchword for the budget proposal, Jory? A
6: 5.2 percent average pay raise, yes, is what we're looking at here. And what the Biden administration is calling on Congress to do, in addition to meeting that pay request, is deal with federal pay compression so that the executives at the higher rungs of the ladder actually feel the full effect of that 5.2% pay increase. This would be something that would particularly affect members of the senior executive service, higher grade general schedule employees, as well as blue collar workers under the federal wage grade. What they're currently facing now is a cap of about $183,000 annual salary. And so if they're near that cap, then they might not actually feel that 5.2% increase or whatever the pay raise is going to be next year.
0: Right. In other words, if you are making, say, that cap and there's a big pay raise, you get nothing because the maximum never moves up.
6: Correct. Or you get something minimal like a 1% increase.
0: Got it. And so, well, those are two separate things, I guess, because pay compression needs to be addressed by Congress, whereas the 5.2 percent average the president can just do by fiat if there's no language in whatever they eventually appropriate.
6: Right. But I mean, the overarching theme here is that, like so many other presidential budget requests, a lot of this falls on Congress to do the next step. And the ball is really in their court at this point.
0: And how did pay compression come up now of all times?
6: Well, there's some really interesting language in what the Biden administration is saying about this. They say that federal workers' pay is increasingly hamstrung by statutory requirements, and it makes it harder for the federal workforce to recruit people in specialized occupations. That's really telling because the Office of Personnel Management is trying to finalize this long-awaited special salary rate for federal IT and cyber positions. And what we've exclusively reported on that is based on what we've seen so far, that SSR is going to mean a big increase for entry-level and mid-career federal IT and cyber hires, but it's going to mean uh, next to nothing or close to next to nothing for people in those higher uh, positions. It's going to basically have no impact on a good swath of GS-15s and some
0: GS-14s. And also senior executive service.
6: As well as them,
0: Correct. Right. And I guess if agencies feel like they want to bring in somebody on a term basis, say a couple of years from industry to be a CIO or to be a chief data officer or one of these highfalutin professions, those people are often willing to take a pay cut for public service, but maybe not that much of a pay cut.
6: That's really the whole idea. This was never going to be something that the federal government was going to be one to one in terms of what the top tech companies could offer these people. But what they wanted to do was at least narrow that gap so it wasn't so big a pay cut for people who do feel like federal service is the next step in their career.
0: And there are other measures in federal HR generally that are part of the budget plan, but they're really, I guess, found in the analytical perspectives maybe to try to change some policies and practices.
6: Yeah, that's really where you get into the weeds here. And there was actually a lot detailed in those analytical perspectives on the future of federal hiring practices. One thing the White House wants to see in these analytical perspectives is they want a bunch of talent teams to go across the workforce, about 26 of them, and they would scale up some promising hiring pilots that have found uh, some purchase at individual agencies.
0: And so this is kind of a stretching of Title V, I guess or maybe a stretching of merit systems principles if you've got these rapid deployment teams and rapid hiring kinds of authorities?
6: Well, of course, agencies are – they have a whole array of special hiring authorities. And what this really comes down to is these kinds of specialized uh, positions, these kinds of people that have a certain background to the hiring. This is people that we're looking at that are IT hires, cyber hires, data scientists – things of that nature. The one pilot that is particularly promising that the administration is looking to scale up here is Subject Matter Expert Qualification Assessments, or SMEQA. This is the idea that you bring in people who are currently working in that field, you bring in the current data scientists or the cyber experts to assess candidates as they come in. So it's not just the beleaguered HR person trying to understand who's the best cyber hire for their agency.
0: Right. So they want to then do a lot of stretching and fitting and backfilling within merit systems, within Title V competitive hiring. But there just might be they feel some speedier ways and more efficacious ways of getting the people with the skills they really need.
6: Right. Yeah. This is more of a stopgap thing than a complete rebuild of what's already been in place in terms of federal hiring.
0: And the budget talks about federal office space. That's a hot issue in a lot of cities. Landlords are worried about it. Some municipal administrations are wondering where the government is heavy there, what's going to happen, as we know, in D.C. So tell us what the budget says about all of that.
6: Well, it continues with this refrain that agencies should rethink their office space needs, especially as hybrid and remote work schedules are more of a reality for agencies right now since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. What we've yet to see is really kind of that other shoe drop of agencies actually coming forward and saying, here's what we have as far as excess property. There was language in the 2023 omnibus spending bill that directed GSA to regularly go up to Capitol Hill and give those kinds of briefings, say, here's what we as the federal landlord have in terms of excess property. But this has just been something that we've yet to see those kinds of concrete details on. Agencies did have to give OMB, a rundown of that excess property. Uh, At least on paper, they were supposed to do that by the end of calendar year 2022. But at this point, the details have yet to emerge.
0: Right. The government, I guess no agency head wants to be the first one to give up 100,000 square feet of space because once it's gone, baby, it's gone. And it would take probably an act of Congress to expand back again if they ever wanted to.
6: Right. They, They don't want to give up property that they might make use of down the line and So in that case, agencies are a little incentivized to be hoarders.
0: Anything else on the HR, hiring, office space, federal employee employment front we need to know, Jory?
6: Yeah, there is. There is some focus here on building up agency HR offices to do the kind of long-term hiring that we're seeing at a number of agencies right now. The idea is that you want to hire the hirers so that you know where the skills gaps are and actually have some strategic vision to that long-term hiring. We're seeing that at the IRS and the Veterans Affairs Departments under the Inflation Reduction Act and the PACT Act, respectively. And we're seeing that more broadly across government with respect to the bipartisan infrastructure law. OPM had a big help in getting those people on board under that legislation. They have helped agencies hire 3,500 new employees, across 90 different occupations at this point, and that hiring is going to keep happening this year.
0: Right. IRS, they're going to have lots of hiring authority, as you mentioned, VA. Well, given the plus-up that the administration is asking for, for the civilian side of government, then people are going to be part of that.
6: Absolutely. And you want to make sure that there is a solid investment to be made from that spending.
0: Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with FederalNewsNetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Temin.